You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So, uh, as I was saying last week, uh, Cole Kirby, our other church planning resident here at Sojourn Montrose, uh, preached our first sermon in this series, right? And, and, and he focused in on uh, the issue of adoption and abortion and how the Christian ought to respond uh, to these issues. And so today, uh, we'll tackle another aspect of this overarching theme of justice and mercy um, that I, will, I, I prefer the term ethnic conciliation as opposed to racial reconciliation. Simply put, because we're all one human race, reconciliation implies there was at one time harmony between ethnicities. Um, and so it's not a hill I'm willing to die on, but I just prefer to use that. And so D.A. Horton, a theologian who, who coined the term, describes uh, ethnic conciliation as this, conflicting ethnic parties working towards overcoming their animosity, distrust, or hostility in order to operate as one united entity. So conflicting ethnic parties working towards overcoming their animosity, distrust, or hostility in order to operate as one united entity. And to everyone here, uh, especially those of you uh, here this morning that don't know me personally, uh, I want want you to hear my heart before we jump into uh, this topic, which is a, uh, to many, a sensitive topic and a weighty topic. I I want you to hear my heart that what we're about to talk about is, is hard and will make many of us feel I'm uncomfortable, but I I want you to hear uh, that I'm in no way trying to necessarily guilt anyone or shame anyone into action. Um, But my hope is that the gospel of Jesus and the nature of who God is will compel us to action instead. I've been a part of Sojourn really since its inception. Uh, If we want to go further back, even when it was just a dream in a few people's minds, um, and there's been times and seasons throughout the last seven years that have been uncomfortable for me, uh, particularly the last few years. But um, I love Sojourn deeply, uh, even when it's made me uncomfortable. So if we could this morning, I'd love for all of us here to be uncomfortable together. And so uh, as, as Cole stated last week, as, as Christians, to truly value life means we value it indeed from the womb to the tomb, and while he, he focused last week on abortion and adoption from the womb, right? I want to focus this uh, morning on life after the womb. And so I want to tell you guys a, a quick kind of funny story before we uh, jump in. So when my wife and I, Chelsea, when we started dating, um, I, I remember one night uh, we were driving to a restaurant. It was nighttime. And uh, so I was wearing a fitted ball cap, an Astros fitted ball cap, right? And uh, I'm driving, and a police officer, like, comes our way, right? And it's just a natural, it's always been a, just an instinct of mine. When I see a police, I throw my cap off. No animosity behind it. It's just, that's how I was raised. That's what I saw in my environment growing up in kind of a low-income hood, right? Um, and the older guys that we looked up to, that's what they did. They're like, man, you, you got to look as as like as normal as possible. So you can't look suspicious in front of, of a, uh, in front of a police officer to prevent him from stopping you. So that's simply what I did. I didn't even 
think twice about it. And, and I said, oh, snap, there's a cop. And I threw my hat down. And Chelsea looks at me and starts laughing. She's like, what in the world? How, how does throwing your cap off and a police officer coming towards you go together? Like, how do you reconcile those two things? So I began to, you know, we began to have a conversation and realizing it's kind of our, our radically different upbringings, right? And where we were uh, kind of coming from and our different perspectives. And she began to share with me that growing up for her, um, she's like, a police officer was a sign of safety. My parents taught me to run towards police officers if I ever needed help. Um, and I share this story uh, as an example of uh, kind of how radically different views are sowed into our minds by family, friends, and our culture growing up. And, and many of those views and postures, uh, whether right or wrong, uh, still have, we still have in us. Some of them not even realizing that are still uh, present in us. And so this is indeed, uh, it's vital, it's essential to admit that we're coming from different perspectives, that we're coming from different cultures, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. But if we want to get anywhere productive in this conversation and in this pursuit of biblical kind of ethnic harmony, uh, we can't simply end there. We can't simply end at acknowledging that we're coming at it from different perspectives. And, and, and I want you to hear me here, brothers and sisters, at, at some point after hearing each other's perspectives and experiences we must arrive at a place where we realize that there is a right side and a wrong side of history. As, as uncomfortable as that might be for all of us. And if we don't arrive at a place where we acknowledge that some of us may be right and some of us may be wrong, then, then what will happen is we'll continue to share our experiences and our different perspectives pat each other on, back, on, the, on the back, kind of patronize each other, and go about our merry way still having the same ideas, same distrust, maybe even animosities. And really what will happen is we'll, we'll cultivate a very shallow form of unity. Eric Mason, a, a, an Acts 29 pastor in Philly, has this to say about it. He says, before we ask for solutions to the race divide, we have to spend significant time agreeing on the problems. So we do have a long road ahead of us in pursuing uh, this, this kind of harmony, this unity in diversity across ethnic lines. So if we are going to be truly committed to pursuing unity in diversity, and we need a, then we need a stronger motivator than just because it's the hot topic in the media or, or motivated out of, of, out of a political uh, position. We need a, a, a stronger motivator than that. Those motives are weak and quickly shatter in the face of difficulty. And, and so our motive, our impetus must always be the gospel of Jesus. That though he had all power, he stepped into the muck of our world, right? To dwell with us, he pursued us, he walked our streets, he ate our food, he spoke our language, and he postured himself as a humble servant wanting to come into this earth to ultimately redeem us back to himself, to make us children of the Father and brothers of himself. 
And so we'll take a look at this gospel truth in more depth. But before we dive in, allow me to share some stats and some historical facts about this topic of racism, systemic injustice. So the Association of Religious Data Services did a study in 2012 and found that 50% of people to varying degrees of agreement agreed that one of the most effective ways to improve race relations is to simply stop talking about race. 92% of white police officers believe the U.S. has made the changes needed to give the black community equal rights, while 84% of the black community believe our country needs to continue making changes to give them equal rights. So this disparity is disheartening, right, when we consider our nation's history with police brutality towards the black community at the hands of uh, white officers. This is a survey that was conducted in 2016 by the Pew Research Center. And then a study conducted by a Harvard sociologist found that whites with a felony on their record are just as likely as blacks and Hispanics with no criminal record to get a call back after applying for entry-level jobs. So essentially what they, what they concluded is that being colored is equivalent to having a felony when trying to get an entry-level job. This is from uh, Deva Pager in her study in 2003. And we can't ignore American history, right? We cannot honestly tell and speak of American history without the shameful reality of racism. From the construction of the ideology of separate races to justify the enslavement of African people to the three-fifths compromise where this nation compromised on the humanity of a black person and agreed among themselves that for representative purposes, black people were only three-fifths human. To the Jim Crow laws that enforced segregation, something that the great majority of the white American church supported, to the overtly racist practices of redlining where the FHA in its underwriting manual plainly stated, incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities, which basically meant that loans for African Americans could not be insured. And so the underwriting manual also recommended that highways be a good way to separate white and black neighborhoods. So the long-term effect for African Americans being prohibited from purchasing homes in the suburbs and building equity is that African American incomes on average are about 60% of average white incomes. But get this, African-American wealth is only 5% of white wealth. And so this enormous difference is almost entirely attributed to the federal housing policies that were implemented throughout the 20th century. And the last one, the Children's Defense Fund refers to what is termed the Four Americas, which is the striking difference in educational outcomes among Asian white, Hispanic, and black students. Although the United States ranked 17th in 2009 among 66 industrialized nations in reading proficiency, for example, this ranking obscures vast disparities across racial and ethnic groups. When compared to students in the 65 other industrialized nations, Asian Americans ranked second Anglos were ranked seventh. And get this, in sharp contrast, Hispanics ranked 40, Hispanic Americans ranked 43rd 
African Americans ranked 49th. And this is from the Children's Defense Fund uh, research they did in 2012. And so now that I've, I've given us some, some stats and some, uh, some things to wrestle with and to grapple with and to think about, shedding some light on how far back this issue goes, particularly in our nation here, we must ask ourselves as Christians, how do we respond? Right? How do we respond? And so as Christians who are called to be light in dark places, acknowledging that God sovereignly ordains where we live, we accept that God has placed us here in this city, in this state, in this nation, in this particular time in history. And so just like Christians today can engage and should engage, should engage in the issues of abortion with such passion, there is no excuse for not impassionately engaging this other aspect of justice and mercy as well. And to tackle this issue, uh, as Christians, as I stated earlier, our only source of truth is found in God's word. And our only motivator for obedience as disciples of Jesus is the gospel. So we'll be looking at, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians. But I wanted to um, kind of navigate through Philippians 2 first. And the reason is because before we tackle what it looks like to live in unity and diversity, as I stated, we need the right motivator, the, the right impetus for this, which is always the example of Christ displayed in the gospel. So let me read Philippians 2, 1 through 11 for you. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, this is Paul, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul, after having told the Philippians in chapter 1 to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, which essentially means to live in a way uh, that shows that you've truly experienced the gospel, that the gospel truly has taken root in your life. Live in that kind of way. After calling them to labor in the unity of the spirit and mind for the gospel, and after reminding them that they have been granted by grace not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for him as well, he tells them to complete his joy to put the icing on top of the cake for him. By what? By being united in mind 
and in love. Cause them to do nothing out of selfishness, but in humility to count others more significant than themselves. In other words, he's calling them to engage their fellow brothers and sisters when it's hard and uncomfortable, especially when it's hard and uncomfortable. Why? Well, he gives that reason, right? Because God stepped into the most uncomfortable place, being in the most comfortable place on his throne, being worshipped for all of eternity, stepped out into time from being not bound by time, stepped into our world and served us. Not only that, but he came into this world and he wasn't fed with a silver spoon when he was born. He was born in a place that today would, would be called something like a ghetto or a hood. When Nathaniel, a, a good Jewish man, was told that the Messiah was from Nazareth, he responds, what good can come out of Nazareth? He engaged the broken, the oppressed, marginalized. He was born among them. And this is essentially what Paul is telling the Philippians should be their motivation to step outside of themselves in humility and count others more significant because this is what Christ did for us. Jesus, even though he was God, did not cling to his godness to get him out of suffering. He, Jesus didn't take the easy route because it was more comfortable and then just clung to the fact that, well, I'm God. Really, I could... I don't even have to go through. No, he emptied himself of that privilege so that he could ultimately go to the cross for the joy that was set before him to die and suffer the justice laid on him that you and I deserve. He does this all for our sake out of a relentless love to uh, make his very own enemies his brothers and sisters to make his enemies fellow children of God the Father while we were at odds with God, while we were God's enemies. God pursued us. God engaged us. So this is uh, Paul's desire that they would do this for one another. And as I said, he, he says, complete my joy. Just put that icing on top of that cake by being united in one spirit, in one love. The Philippians uh, ultimately would complete Paul's joy by being united. And, and that's what he's getting at with the Corinthians as well in the scripture that, that Marshall read. We see Paul addressing unity in the body uh, as well here in, in, in Corinthians. And we see the same passion for church unity in this passage as, as he talks about the body of Christ being one body yet made up of many different members. And in the context here, he, he just finished talking about spiritual gifts. He, he's in the context of talking about spiritual gifts, but, but there's some things we can extract here that apply across the board to any differences that we have in the body. He reminds them we're one body. We drank from one spirit, many members, yet one body. It says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, what would be the sense of smell? Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And in verse 24, he says, But God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, So he's telling the Corinthians, hey, per- pursue this unity. It looks like looks like you're suffering at the end of the day. The way you know is because you're suffering when your brother suffers or sister suffers. You rejoice when your brother or sister rejoices. If I have a really close friend, which, you know, I think of you know, a few off the top of my head. If, if I saw them broke if they went through a very hard thing like a got diagnosed with a terminal illness and i see them breaking if they're a close friend of mine and that's going to break me if i'm emotionally invested in that friendship i will be broken for my brother and that that's the true kind of sign that my, that my friendship with him is, is truly deep if I break, if I lay my life down and say, what can I do for you, brother? And un- un- unfortunately, uh, too often in the big C church, but honestly, even in my own heart, I'm tempted to approach it from a perspective of, let me, let me, let me, let me show you how you're wrong. But if we could approach one another with radically different perspectives and views in humility, counting each other greater than ourselves, and saying, brother, how are you suffering? I want to suffer with you. How are you rejoicing? I want to rejoice with you. I want to be able to suffer, brothers and sisters, for my brothers and sisters who feel unheard, who are white brothers and sisters in rural parts of America, just as much as I want to do with my minority brother that I can relate to most. At the end of the day, this, this, this gospel of, 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 of radical reconciliation between enemy and God is, is our motivator. There is, there is no difference between me and any other brother or sister in the body of Christ. There's no difference between me and any other brother that's different than me that, is more, that, that, that has a, such a stark difference as me being an enemy, God being creator, God pursuing me, his enemy, making me his child. So if God did that for me, why would I not do that for my brother or sister that's different from me? As we continue to 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 to, to see, um, kind of our 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 nation, right? Our our nation uh, polarizing itself against each other. 
We can be what God has called us to be, which is to dwell in unity and diversity and to display to our world what it truly looks like to be united amongst diversity. Forgot what uh, article it was, but it was a ministry called Destino from uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. And, and they had written an article about kind of intercultural ministry, trans, you know, cross-cultural ministry. And it was intriguing. It was, it was, I loved it because it talked about, you know, culture around the world and how each culture, no matter which one it is, displays a certain attribute or it has a tendency to amplify a certain attribute of God um, that maybe another culture doesn't, while that other culture may amplify another attribute of God. So when we dwell together with brothers and sisters that are different from us, there's a beautiful opportunity to see the attributes of God displayed and amplified in other people's cultures that maybe in our own culture isn't amplified. And to come together, brothers and sisters from different walks of life, different culture, ethnicities, then we begin to picture this, this great, God and all of his attributes as we look at him through different cultural lenses and God becomes more glorious to us and God no longer is just one-sided. We need each other. We need each other. We need those who are different from us. Ultimately, our, ultimately our example, our prime example and the originator of unity and diversity is God. When we look at the nature of God, God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being one God, united in nature, indivisible, united in purpose, in will, in desire. Yet within this Godhead, within God's nature, we see Him revealed to us as three distinct persons, not separate, but distinct. While all everything that is known about God generally and all of His attributes can be can be attributed to each person of the Trinity, there are distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we see this beautiful uh, example, or the prime example, of unity in diversity. So if our Creator is the originator of unity in diversity, I think we can begin to see why our culture, our world, those even who don't, acknowledge Christ as Lord, have this innate desire in them to pursue unity and diversity. Our culture today parades diversity, a skewed view of it, right? Not knowing that 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 desire deep within them comes from the fact that the creator of their own soul is unity and diversity. So our world is already looking for a picture of what that looks like. And what a privilege it is for us as God's people, as the church. We have been called to display this imperfectly, definitely, but display this unity and diversity to a watching world. And because God is our model for church unity and diversity, because Christ is our prime example of moving towards those radically different from us, we're compelled by God to pursue our brothers and sisters, our neighbors who are radically different from us. So how do we respond, right? How do we respond then 
There's a, there's a, a parable that Christ uh, taught a lawyer that approached him in Luke. And this lawyer uh, stood before him and he asked Jesus, Teacher, uh, what, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, Shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer desiring to justify himself, right, and Jesus knowing his heart, uh, the, the lawyer asked Jesus, then who is my neighbor? This is when Jesus then proceeded to, 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 to tell him this parable of the Good Samaritan, and I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. But he says this in Luke 10. says, the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Now, the fact that this man was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, we can imply that this man was more than likely Jewish. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, right? Samaritans were hated by Jews, considered half-breeds. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So then Jesus asked the lawyer, So which one of these do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? And of course the lawyer pinned against the corner says, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This was, this was a pretty controversial uh, parable that Christ spoke of because we see here a, a Samaritan who was not considered a part of the in crowd to the Jews is actually the one who pursued the man in need of help, which was a Jewish man. And what did the Levite and the priest do? They walked on the other side of the street and just passed by him probably had some very important things that they needed to do. And if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest at times even with, my, with myself, it's much easier to step on the other side of the street, out of sight, out of mind. Right? If I just don't think about it, if I don't dwell on it, and I just don't have to deal with all of this. But Christ tells the, the, the lawyer and, and, and tells us this morning through his word to love our neighbor as ourselves, even the one that's radically different from us, even, even if the situation means uh, disruption in our life. I'm sure the Levite, I'm sure the priest could have said, I'm on my way to the temple to do the Lord's work. Well, I'm all about the gospel only. I don't deal with these things on the side. They could have made great, excuses to not deal with the brokenness in front of them so god calls us to that out of this motivation of the gospel 
And we want, as Sojourn Montrose and as um, uh, a staff, provide ways that you can connect. But immediately, immediately, what, what, what I believe the, the Lord through Scripture would call us to do uh, is to pursue relationships with those radically different from us. And to come to a place where we begin to really grapple with and wrestle with different views and different opinions and different, and even do more study. I, I'd, I'd love to send you all the stats and the research uh, I did. I didn't do it on my own. I had other people help me. I'd love to send that to you. And if, if we're going to be about pursuing this out of compassion, um, we have to allow the Lord to disrupt our comfortableness. And so to that end, right after this gathering, there's going to be a conversation at one of our members' houses, and they've opened up their house. Uh, for anyone who's compelled to go, um, regardless of where you stand, just to have a hump, to, to, this is an immediate opportunity to act out what we just read in Philippians, to not come angry or not to come uh, just to voice our opinion and get it off our chest, but to really pursue each other in biblical humility and say, I want, I want to learn. And so if you, if you want to join us for that conversation, come up to me after the gathering. Um, come up to, I know Caitlin and Peyton uh, know the information as well. Uh, feel free to come up to us, and we'd love to connect you with the address on where that's going to be held right after this gathering. But to reiterate, brothers and sisters, as we close, remember what Christ did for you. Remember how radically different the fact that you were an enemy of God and how he pursued you and me. And let that be the motivator for us, the impetus for us to pursue um, ethnic conciliation. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you as broken people indeed, people in need of your grace, of your mercy. God, help us this morning to uh, live in light of what you've done for us, God, and uh, help us to uh, pursue one another, uh, pursue those who are radically different from us. Let us be that picture for a watching world of what it truly looks like to dwell in unity among diversity, that that would be compelling to the outsider, and through that, God, even come to be reconciled to you. Help us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.